Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 87, Kermit Zarley on the Deity and Preexistence of Jesus. Mr. Kermit Zarley was a successful professional golfer on the PGA Tour and the Champions Tour, the author of several books. He also blogs on golf, theology, the Bible, and current events at the Kermit Zarley blog on Patheos. He's back with us today to discuss his 2008 book, The Restitution of Jesus Christ, which is focused on biblical Christology. Mr. Zarley, welcome back to the Trinity's podcast. Oh, I'm glad to be with you again, Dale. Mr. Zarley, evangelicals commonly talk of the deity of Christ, but they generally don't clarify what they mean. They interchange this talk with saying that Jesus is divine or fully divine, or most commonly, they'll just say that Jesus is God. If they ask you if you agree with such statements, how would you reply? Well, I try to be as, as biblical as I can in expressing myself as a Christian. One thing I would say in response to that question is that the expression deity of Christ or deity of Jesus or even Jesus being identified as possessing deity, the word deity, none of that is in the New Testament. As far as calling Jesus divine, theologians and biblical scholars do that a lot. I think that it's not very clear to define, identify Jesus that way, unless at least you define what you mean by the word divine. I don't find any place in the New Testament that calls Jesus divine. The clearest way for a Christian to identify Jesus, a Christian who believes in the so-called deity of Christ or that Jesus is divine, is to just say Jesus is God. That's the way I always did. I was a so-called Trinitarian Christian for 22 years. That's what I always did. I just told people that Jesus is God. And I didn't probably talk that much about Jesus being divine. I might not even use that language. I did use the language deity of Christ. But yeah, that's the way I would respond to that. And as far as the New Testament saying Jesus is God, that isn't in there either. So it does say that he is the Son of God. Isn't saying that he's Son of God the same as saying that he's God the Son, one of the Trinity? Well, yes, that's what Trinitarians have been led to say, that Jesus is God the Son, because he's the Son of God. He's a proper son, not just a phony, baloney son or an adopted son. He's a real, genuine, true, name-brand son, not a generic. So doesn't that imply that he's divine, that he's got the divine nature? As I said before, I think that we should understand Jesus' identity of being the Son of God from the Old Testament. That is, the use of that language in the Old Testament, because angels were called sons of God, the King of Israel was called the Son of God. But in the New Testament, 
it does have the article with the word son. And of course, the Greek New Testament word for son is huios. And so the article both huios, that means the son. So the meaning of that is that Jesus is the son of God like no other son of God is or has ever been. And so it makes Jesus stand out. He is the son of God par excellence. Just like God is not, not just theos, not a God, not, not merely that, he's also the, the God, ha theos. Yes. And so he's the son in the sense of that God caused Jesus's mother to become pregnant and also, isn't son of God, the, or the son of God, doesn't that become kind of a technical term in New Testament times for the Messiah? I think it does. In fact, I think that son of God is used interchangeably in the New Testament multiple times with the Messiah. For example, when Jesus took the apostles over to Caesarea Philippi, and he asked them, whom do men say is the Son of Man? That's what Matthew says. Mark and Luke say that he said, whom do men say I am? But after they gave some responses, he asked them, well, who do you say I am? And so when he says, who do you say I am? He's identifying himself as the Son of Man. This is important in theology because there were theologians who said every time Jesus talked about the Son of Man, he was talking about somebody else beside himself. Rudolf Bultmann was famous for that. I think that's quite wrong, and it's made obvious right here in this text. But Peter's the one who spoke up. And what did Peter say? According to Matthew, he said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Mark and Luke don't add that second clause. They just say, you are the Christ. But at any rate, according to Matthew, Peter is interchanging those two ways of describing Jesus. He's calling him the Son of God, and he's calling him the Messiah, meaning the Messiah of Israel. Okay, let's take it down to Jesus' condemnation before the Sanhedrin, before which he is soon to be crucified. And so the Sanhedrin is trying to get something on Jesus, an infraction of the law, meaning the law of Moses, because Jesus was a Torah teacher. Torah means law. So Jesus was an expert in the law of Moses and a teacher of it. And the high priest said to Jesus, after all of these witnesses had come forth, to try to condemn Jesus for some infraction of the law of Moses, they weren't successful one single bit. They couldn't get any dirt on Jesus. And finally, the high priest just said, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One. You know, Jews didn't like to use God or God's name Yahweh because they thought that was an infraction of one of the Ten Commandments. So they would say, blessed one. And so what was Jesus' response? Well, now, according to one synoptic writer, he said, you have said it. I think that is probably what Jesus said. Uh, not Mark says, uh, I am. But I think he probably said, you have said it. But the meaning would be the same. It's I am same. he. Like, yes, I'm that guy. Yeah. 
But the high priest is interchanging these two ways of identifying the Messiah. You can call him the Messiah. What does Messiah mean? Anointed one. Mashiach, Hebrew word. Or you can call him the Son of God. And so Jesus is both, and it seems that those were used interchangeably. So to say that Jesus is the Son of God, that means he's the Messiah. And uh, who is the Messiah? Well, he's one specially chosen by God to be the great deliverer of Israel. And we know from the New Testament to become the king of the entire world, according to the book of Revelation, king of kings and lord of lords. Son of David. There you go. Son of David is another. And so to call Jesus the son of God, that means he's this one specially chosen by God. Be this great person in the world. And that, I think, is what Son of God means as applied to Jesus. It does not mean that he's God the Son. That was an invention of church fathers, and I think that was a mistake. And just to pile on to the authors and the people reported that you just mentioned, there's the kind of climactic thesis statement of the fourth gospel, the gospel which is always mined for hidden evidence that Jesus is really God, But the author tells us what the entire point of it is, and when he does tell us the point, he uses the terms Christ and Son of God interchangeably. He says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he's using the phrase Son of God to explain what he means by the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. Yeah, another good interchanging of the two. Good, Dale. Now, Mr. Zarley, what about the so-called pre-existence text? Many people, if told that Jesus is not God in the New Testament, they will say, but wait a second, isn't he eternal? Look, there are all these texts, or at least there's a handful of texts, which clearly imply that he existed before his conception in Mary. And so doesn't that imply that he's divine and not merely human? Well, that's a good question, Dale. I said previously... I was a Trinitarian 22 years and then started to investigate this question. It took me about two and a half years, and then I made my decision. No, the New Testament does not say Jesus is God. None of the sayings of Jesus in the Gospels, Jesus says, I am God. Nothing like that. So I I made this decision. No, the New Testament does not say Jesus is God. But I continued to think Well, there are these verses in the New Testament that seem to say that Jesus pre-existed. And that's what I had believed, because I believed in the Incarnation. I believed in the doctrine of the Trinity. And so I continued to think there are these verses in the New Testament that seem to say that Jesus pre-existed. But I no longer think that Jesus was God when he lived on this earth. 
And if he wasn't, then he didn't pre-exist as God. Now, if you believe that Jesus pre-existed, does that mean you're believing that Jesus is God? I don't think the two comport. I think that you can believe that a human being pre-existed, but they didn't have to pre-exist as God. And so there have been various different leading Christians in the history of Christianity who had believed that all humans pre-existed. I mean, Origen was considered to be the most outstanding theologian after apostolic times in the first several centuries of Christianity, and he believed in the pre-existence of all souls. Jews have believed that some of their heroes of the faith pre-existed. Uh, another belief like that, to me, is that they believe that uh, some of those heroes of the faith went to heaven when they were living here on the earth, and then they came back from heaven bringing some great spiritual truth. But Jews didn't think that if a human being pre-existed, that that automatically made them God. So I continued to believe in the pre-existence of Jesus after I decided, no, Jesus is not God. And it took me about 10 years before I came to the place where, no, I no longer believe that Jesus pre-existed. Yes, the Gospel of John opens up and it says, uh, speaks of the Logos which we interpret as word. And uh, incidentally, that third clause in the first verse of the Gospel of John is traditionally translated, and the word was God. The New English Bible translates that, and what God was, the word was. So that is a very complex text in the Greek New Testament, and it requires a lot of digging into. And for those who don't know Greek, it becomes much more difficult to understand what it's saying. And so I don't think that it's saying that the Logos is God. In fact, I believe that the Logos is a part of God. It's His Word. It's just like us humans. We speak. And what comes out is our Word. And so that's how the Word is to God. The Word is to God. The Logos is to God. Like the our word is to ourself. I look at the Spirit of God the same way. The Spirit of God is to God as the Spirit of man is to man. So I don't consider the Logos that's spoken of in the first chapter of the Gospel of John as a personal being separate from God the Father. No, that's a misunderstanding of the Logos. And so the Logos is not personal. And so if we say, well, Jesus pre-existed as the Logos, well, if he did, wasn't a personal being. And so I can't say that Jesus pre-existed as a being, as an individual, before he came into this world. The main text that Trinitarians would cite would be John 6, John 8:58. Let me just say, okay, about John 6. That was always, to me, the strongest text in the Bible that I thought taught that Jesus preexisted. He said, I am the bread of life. This is a dialogue that he's having with Jews. 
and he's doing a lot of teaching on this. He says, I am the bread of life. And he says, I have come down from heaven. And he says it repeatedly. And so I had understood this to mean that Jesus pre-existed as an actual being and that he came into this world as the doctrine of the incarnation teaches that God came into this world and became a man. And I thought that that's, uh, that's what this God, uh, Jesus is saying here. But now when I changed from being Trinitarian, I no longer believe Jesus was God. So I didn't believe that Jesus is saying here, I was God, I preexisted as God, and then I came into this world. No, I changed my belief on that, and I said, okay, Jesus is saying he preexisted. And then he came into this world as the bread of life. And so I, I continue to believe it that way until I began to notice that, well, wait just a minute. Jesus is saying here that I am flesh. I am blood. I'm opening it here. He says, Verily, verily, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So he's, he's now saying something else besides just the bread of life. Does he mean this literally? Well, now the Catholic Church thinks he does, and they call that the doctrine of transubstantiation, and that's what they believe when they take the communion service. Now, Protestants don't agree with that, and so I'm in the Protestant tradition on that. I think this should be understood symbolically. And actually, does Jesus even refer to the communion service, which he instituted at the Last Supper? No, I don't think he's talking about that in John 6. So, does he mean this literally about flesh and blood? No, he doesn't. He means this symbolically. And so if we're going to say this, that when he's talking about the flesh of the Son of Man and the blood of the Son of Man, that he means this in a non-literal fashion, then why do we make that interpretation that way of that and then say that Jesus as the bread of life, that that's to be understood literally? We don't think that Jesus was actual bread but we're making a literal interpretation that he came down from heaven. And so the whole thing, I began to decide, it doesn't make any sense to translate this one portion where he says he came down from heaven, translate that literally, and then to translate all the rest about the bread, about the flesh, about the blood, all non-literally. That is not the way you're supposed to interpret any document, including the Bible. And so I decided that Jesus is speaking in a spiritual fashion here. And the Gospel of John is known among Bible scholars as the spiritual gospel because Jesus would constantly talk in a way that he was misunderstood because people interpreted him literally. Just think of Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. This is in John chapter 3. He wanted to question Jesus. And he said, We know you're a man come from God, for no man can do these things that you do without God being with him. What do you mean by what things? Well, 
Nicodemus knew him to have done some miracles, which the Gospel of John calls signs. And so Nicodemus was impressed with Jesus. Now when he says we, he's not referring to the entire membership of the Sanhedrin, but a certain group who apparently were thinking alike. What about this Jesus? No, he's not an imposter, which most of the Sanhedrin was thinking. He's not a false messiah. He's come from God. No man can do these things he does unless God is with him. And so after Nicodemus said that, Jesus said to him right away, he says, you need to be born again. What in the world did Jesus mean by that? Well, Nicodemus said, what? Do you mean that I got to go back into my mother's womb and be reborn a second time physically? Yeah, I don't think mom would approve. <laughs> Good. And no, Jesus didn't mean that. And so Nicodemus was understanding him literally, and therefore he was misunderstanding him. So then Jesus went on and taught more about it. And he says, that which is of spirit is spirit, and that which is of flesh is flesh. And so Jesus was talking about a spiritual birth. That is one of the many evidences of the Gospel of John being the spiritual gospel. And so just as that happens in the third chapter of John, I think it also happens in sixth chapter where Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life who comes down from heaven. Now, what about the famous statement in John 17, where he says something like, Father, now glorify me with that glory which I had with you before the world began. A lot of people interpret that as where he's like remembering glory that he used to have, and then he wants it to be restored to him just like the good old days, or maybe better. How do you understand that particular passage in John? Yeah, that's a real good question, Dale. And I used to believe that as a Trinitarian, that that was another pre-existence passage there for Jesus. Father, glorify me with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. I don't think this should be understood literally. What Jesus has in mind, I believe, is that he is the chosen one. God has chosen him before God created the universe. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that God had this plan. Why did he create the universe? What was he going to do with it? Well, he had this plan to make human beings. And he was going to bring about Jesus. Jesus is speaking about the plan of God here in John 17, verse 5. And he means that God has planned since before the foundation of the world, as the Bible sometimes calls it, that Jesus was going to be greatly exalted. We learn in the Isaiah 52, 13, speaking of the suffering servant, which Christians believe is Jesus, that he shall be greatly exalted and lifted up. And so what is this greatly exalted? Well, 
After his death, resurrection, and ascension, he entered heaven, and God said, come and sit down with me here at my right hand on my throne. So Jesus was lifted high up, high up to heaven. I've got a book that I'm going to be talking about. How high is that? And where is it? And so Jesus was lifted up, and he sat down at the right hand of God. And that's the exaltation. Uh, I would turn over here to Isaiah 42. I believe that that this uh, statement by Jesus, he has some things in mind when he says this, probably. And one might be in Isaiah 42, 8, speaking of the suffering servant. Verse 5, it tells us about God creating the heavens and stretching them out. And then I have given you as a covenant to the people. Who is you? The suffering servant. The righteous suffering servant, incidentally. There are two servants here. Uh, one is uh, sinful Israel. The other is the uh, righteous suffering servant who Christians believe is Jesus. Then it says, I will make you a covenant to the people, a light to the nations. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone out into all the world. Jesus is the light. He said, I am the light. And to open their eyes of the blind, bring prisoners out of the dungeon, and so forth. I am the Lord, meaning Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. This has usually been translated, I mean interpreted, to mean God doesn't give his glory to anybody. I think that's a mistake. I think God is saying, I, the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. I give my glory to no other than my suffering servant, who he's just been talking about. Who, we need to understand from Isaiah, Deutero-Isaiah here, that there are two suffering servants in view. There is the righteous suffering servant, who we Christians believe is Jesus, and then there is Israel. And there's an intermixture that goes on. And it makes it kind of difficult to figure out, well, uh, is Isaiah talking in this passage about the uh, righteous suffering servant or sinful Israel? That becomes difficult. So I think Jesus had that in mind. Or let's turn over to uh, chapter 49, verse 5. It's a small thing. It's too light a thing, verse 6 that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations. Now he's talking about the righteous suffering servant. It's obviously distinguished from Jacob, referring to Israel. And so I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the world. The Redeemer of Israel, his Holy One. So God is going to greatly exalt Jesus. And it's that preexistent plan, that glory, that I think Jesus is talking about there in John 17, 5. So it's not his remembering his previous glorious condition. It's his talking about something predestined as preexistent in God's plan right. or in God's mind, something like that. Right. Now, about pre-existence, you made the point a while ago that pre-existence doesn't imply deity. You might be uh, some something that's less than the one true God and still exists before you were human. 
That's right. We, we could also make the point that some of those early guys like Justin and Tertullian, they believed in pre-existence of the pre-human Jesus, but not that he eternally existed. They thought that he came into existence around the time when it was time to create the world. So they took a view that you know later gets pilloried as Arianism, but of course Arius had nothing to do with it. They just thought that Jesus was the first one that God created before he created the cosmos. But of course there is the issue of Jesus being the creator. Now you already said in John 1, you think that the word of God there isn't Jesus, the word by which God created all things and nothing was created without that word. You would say that's not Jesus, that's God's command or attribute or something. Um, and of course, it's notable that in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus never takes credit for having created the world. I mean, that's a pretty stupendous feat. Having created the physical cosmos, you would think he would want to take credit at some point in person. But still, when we turn to Paul in Colossians chapter 1, it says that by him, referring obviously to Jesus, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now, this doesn't really support that Jesus is God himself, because if Jesus was the direct agent of creation and he was being used, as it were, if he's the hand of God, if he's the tool that God is using, then God is still the ultimate creator. And he would just be kind of the co-creator, the sub-creator or something like that. That wouldn't make him God himself. But still, you might think, well, don't you have to be divine if you're in any sense the creator? So what do you say to passages like that? You say you don't believe in preexistence, then you must not think that Jesus is the direct creator of the cosmos. Right. I used to believe that, but um, as I said, I so-called gave up the preexistence about 10 years after I decided, no, the New Testament does not say that Jesus is God. This text, Dale, in Colossians 1.15, starts out, He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. First of all, I think to be in the image of God is to be other than God necessarily. You cannot be God and be in the image of God. The image of God, if that is a, as we would say in English, a person, then that person cannot be God. That person is other than God. Secondly, it says the invisible God. I don't think that Paul means that God is invisible to his angels in heaven. But that Paul means invisible to mortal human beings. God cannot be approached by a mortal human, in my opinion. The psalmist uh, speaks of God being surrounded by unapproachable light. And Paul says, both in the beginning and ending of 1 Timothy, that God is unapproachable and he is the invisible God. But Jesus, it was visible. So Paul here is saying that God is invisible, and I think he means invisible to mortal humans. But Jesus was visible to mortal humans. He interacted with people all the time. And so this, again, is evidence that Jesus is not God. 
because he was visible. God is invisible. But getting to your point about creation, uh, the creation was done through him, meaning Jesus. And so I think that what Paul means there is the same thing that Jesus is saying in John 17, 5. God has Jesus in mind when he created the universe. And so he's making this universe through Jesus, through his plan, Jesus being the head of the human race. And that is what Paul means, incidentally, by the firstborn of creation, of all creation. He doesn't mean that Jesus was created first, and then God created the universe and other human beings. Uh, he means that Jesus is the fourth, firstborn of all creation. He is the head of creation. And of course, what is meant there is that he will be. And we must understand, should understand, God can look at things like when he decides something, it's a done deal. It's just a matter of time before it's going to happen. But in God's eyes, it's as if it's done. And so he can speak of Jesus being the firstborn of all creation, even though it hasn't come to fruition yet. Mr. Zarli, how do you react if people describe your view about Jesus as saying that Jesus is a mere man? That's a real good question. I have friends that, you know, they'll ask me that. Well then, do you believe Jesus was just a mere man? That's an emotionally loaded question. Jesus is very dear to me. I have the promise of eternal life from God because I've accepted, I've believed what Jesus did for me on the cross. He died for my sins. So Jesus is very precious to me. He is the Lord of my life. I try to live my life according to his teachings. He's my master. And so... You know, to say that Jesus is a mere man, well, I believe that he was a man and that he was nothing but a man. Now, I also believe that Jesus was the archetypal man, meaning that Jesus was a man as God intended men to be. God did not intend for Adam and Eve to disobey him, take of the fruit, and therefore become sinners. God put man to that test, but man failed. But God did the same thing with Jesus. He put Jesus to the test, and Jesus emerged victoriously. He did not fail. And so that's why he's qualified to become the Lamb of God. So I believe that Jesus came into this world much like Adam did. 
And I think that's why the Apostle Paul teaches so-called Second Adam Christology in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. Adam came into this world a physically mature individual. He wasn't born a baby. And so God made him as a human being who was not sinful. Well, that's the same way Jesus came into the world. I accept the concept of original sin that Augustine taught. I haven't studied that a lot. Uh, I'd like to study it some more because I know there are some people who are opposed to that. But in the concept of original sin, that means that ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, when people are born into this world, they are tainted by sin and have a sin nature, a nature that's just natural for them to do things that God doesn't like. And so, you know, we break his commandments. This is because of our sinful nature. Now, in God's redemptive program, his salvation, we're eventually going to be totally saved from that when we get our resurrection body, I think. But Jesus, I think, was no more than a man. And to call him a mere man, well, I usually refrain from doing that just because of how people can be upset by that. But if I do use it, and I'm not opposed to using it, in fact, I think I used the term in my book one time, and, you know, I, I did some explaining. But uh, if I do, what I mean by that is that he's no more than a man. He doesn't have two natures. Right. But as to what kind of person he is, you think he's whatever the New Testament explicitly teaches that he is. That's right. He was a human being. He was not God. Uh, he lived a perfect life, so he didn't fail like Adam did. He was victorious over sin, over any temptation, over the temptations of, of the devil, Satan, and therefore he emerged victoriously. Mr. Zarley, many evangelicals, seemingly following Catholic tradition, assert that the deity of Christ is an essential doctrine, a doctrine such that if you don't believe it, you are not saved, and ceasing to believe it is ceasing to be a Christian. In your view, what does the New Testament say about becoming a Christian? Do you have to believe that Jesus is God in order to be saved? Well, that to me is the ultimate question when we talk about this subject of who Jesus is, because this is what most people care about. You know, they care about, am I going to heaven? Do I have God's salvation? Am I going to be raised from the dead and have eternal life? This is what we read about in the New Testament. And how does that happen? Or why does it happen? And so it has to do with what we believe. And God has told us that he has sent his son to die for us on the cross. And so we should believe that. We should believe that Jesus died for our sins. And that's why we call Jesus Savior. And so for me, I believe that a person becomes a Christian, becomes a believer, a follower of Jesus, by believing that he died for our sins on the cross and that we should make him Lord of our lives. 
when I talk about Lordship of Christ, I don't mean that a uh, Christian is perfect, they never sin, I don't mean that, but uh, there's a progression in life of following Jesus and keeping His will and His commandments. And so I think that's what it's all about, becoming a Christian. This subject of whether Jesus is God, uh, the deity of Christ, uh, all of that, I don't think that has anything to do with being a Christian, with believing in Jesus for salvation. We believe in Jesus dying for our sins in order to get saved, in order to get God's salvation, to be forgiven by God of our sins. That happens because we believe in Jesus dying for our sins. It doesn't have anything to do with whether or not we believe Jesus is God or whether or not we believe in the deity of Christ. I'm reminded of the episode in the book of Acts where Philip is preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch and seemingly answering the man's questions, probably prophecies like in Isaiah. And so presumably, you know, what he taught the eunuch before he baptized the man was roughly what Peter says in chapter 2, that he was a man uh, sent by God. He was the Messiah and the Son of God, and as Messiah, he voluntarily agreed to be a sacrifice for the sins of the people, and God raised him to his right hand. The text doesn't go into great detail about what Philip did and didn't say, but the reader presumes that there were no heavy-duty lessons about two natures being one essence and things like that, what's called or summarized up as the deity of Christ. But instead, you see these in a way, kind of simple to understand New Testament teachings that are just through all the books in the New Testament. Yeah, I said, Dale, that the, the main things that got my attention and caused me to believe that the New Testament does not say that Jesus is God are, first of all, you get in a red-letter Bible and look at all the sayings of Jesus in the four Gospels. He never says, I'm God. That's number one. Number two is in the book of Acts, it tells us about the early Christians starting to go out into the world and preach the gospel. That means good news about Jesus. What is the good news about Jesus? What is it they were preaching? Well, first of all, they were saying that he arose from the dead. Now, I think that is the foundation of Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of Christianity. Without it, I don't think there ever would have been any Christianity. That differentiates Christianity from all other religions in the history of the world. And so, believing that Jesus died for our sins, that he arose from the dead, those are the things that we're reading in those messages those evangelistic messages in the book of Acts that Peter and others and then Paul are preaching. They're saying Jesus is the Son of God, He's the Messiah of Israel, and these are the things that they're saying are necessary to believe in order to have the salvation of God. There is nothing in any of those messages of them saying that Jesus is God. It's not even an issue. In fact, I would go beyond that and say 
that in the Gospels, when Jesus is talking about things that cause people to question who he is, they're never asking, are you God? As if somebody thinks he's God or that he ever said he was God. Nobody's ever asking that. It's not an issue. It's the same thing in these messages in the book of Acts. It's not an issue of whether or not Jesus is God. Well, if it's not an issue, then he probably isn't. Mr. Zarley, thank you for talking with us. All right. Thank you, Dale. This week's thinking music has been Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Zabriskie. You can find the link for this track at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Do you enjoy listening to the Trinities podcast? There are four ways you can show us some love in return. First, share the blog post for this episode on whatever social media you use, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Google+. Second, you can leave us a rating and a brief review in the iTunes store and at Stitcher. For step-by-step directions on how to do this, visit trinities.org slash blog slash review. Doing this will help other people who are interested in theology to find this podcast. Third, you can donate to the cause by clicking the orange donate buttons to the right of any blog post. Do you think these episodes are worth a quarter apiece? If so, you can donate a dollar each month via PayPal. And of course, any one-time gift is much appreciated. Fourth, you can send us some brief, to-the-point audio feedback for possible incorporation into a future episode. We would love to hear your question or your comment in your voice. The upload link for your audio file is on the blog post for any episode. To sum up, you can share, rate, donate, and talk back. Thanks for listening and for helping us to get the word out that God wants us to love him in part by thinking hard about him. After all, it was Jesus who said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.